0: Welcome, everybody. Today, very special guest, Michael Malice. Uh, he has very kindly chatted with me before, but we thought we'd do it here on the stream show, and we'll be, of course, watching you all on the restream and the rumble rants. You can uh find him at Michael Malice on Twitter, and Malice, of course, M A L I C E. And uh his new book is called White Pill, uh, a Tale of Good and Evil. He also has the Anarchist Handbook. Michael's a very well-known anarchist. And when I first heard him talk, I thought, oh, man, I'm anarchist. I don't like anarchists. And then I found him compelling, persuasive, thoughtful, and uh, found myself agreeing with many things that he was saying. So that was a shock to me. Uh, and I, th- I think it's not uh, too, too uh, sort of presumptuous of me to say that we're sort of friendly now. And I like Michael and I wanted him on this show. And so let's do it right now. I strongly urge you to go get the white pill. I also suggest the anarchist handbook. You should understand some of the ideas and thoughts that uh, Michael has been putting forward, including the case for American secession, which got everybody rather excited. So let's bring Michael right onto the show. Michael, welcome.
1: Thank you there so you much are. for having me back. It's a pleasure.
0: It, it is my privilege, and uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about the white pill. What, why would people buy this book?
1: oh uh, well i i think one of the most important issues that has happened in your and my lifetimes and everyone else's lifetimes listening to this for the most part was the cold war and the rise and fall of the soviet union And at the same time this is something has that has completely vanished from popular consciousness so there's a lot of talk um from both political tribes about authoritarianism totalitarianism you know trump's literally hitler uh the democrats want to mm-hmm. do x y and z to your kids and i realize that very few americans know what these countries are really like. There is a very poor understanding of in America of what evil is like, what totalitarianism and authoritarianism is like. I'm reminded of when Mike Bloomberg was governor of New York, excuse me, mayor of New York City, and Mike Huckabee, who had been governor of um, Arkansas at the time, was complaining about him limiting the size of big, at, big gulps at 7-Eleven, saying this is just like North Korea. Listen, if the biggest problem in North Korea is that the, the cups of their sodas are too, too small, I mean, you are completely removed from reality. So I wanted to, A, explain to people just how evil, evil societies can become, but also illustrate why I am so hopeful for the future of this country, because this is an example where the victory over what Reagan correctly, in my view, called an evil empire, was so quick, so sudden, and so total, that the country itself no longer exists, no longer exists, and is in fact receded entirely from popular discussion and consciousness. And not only that, you exp- and I and many people listening to this have our families have come from this place, and it's right. important for us to right. remember what that actually meant in practice.
0: Right. That's what I wanted you to explain why, why this is something that is particularly meaningful for you. And I've heard you talk to Lex Friedman about it. And uh, and and at the same time, I wonder if you could sort of address. That while we have no real sense of what that is actually like, would it not be accurate to say that the slide into it is through good intentions, controlling things like health and health emergencies? Is it not the case that if we're not careful, we head in that direction?
1: Uh, No, I don't think it's good intentions at all. Uh, I think good intentions are all, all predators or not all predators all, there's two types of predators there's the uh, chase predators like a cheetah you know they run after their prey but there's the ambush predators like an anglerfish or uh you know chameleon or something like that and I do think that it is a very useful technique if you're trying to pass uh in civil society as having good intentions and that allows power hungry people to get away with the worst atrocities um so no I, I but I do think the second part of what you said yes this is absolutely something to be extremely Concerned about and to demonstrate, you know, you guys think it's bad that you have to, you know, learn something stupid on TV. This is a a drop in the bucket.
0: And and explain your history that why, why this is so pertinent for you specifically.
1: Well, I was born in the former Soviet Union. We emigrated here you know, when I was one and a half, two years old. Um, and a, a previous book of mine, Dear Reader, was about North Korea, which is very much a relic of the Iron Curtain and the um, Soviet era. Um, but I just also think it's important because it bothers me when people are kind of flipping out uh, in the media and talking about how America's done. Or this country has been destroyed, or is this country's two years or one present away from being destroyed? I'm like, do you know how much further we have to go? Now certainly that's the direction that many people in power would like us to go to. But the point of the fact of the matter is, we are not there yet. And it behooves us all to ask why. If these people had their druthers, they would have absolute control. What is preventing this? And what would that look like if they got what they wanted?
0: Well, is what's preventing it, well, now hold on, because we're going to go into really interesting territory here. Is what is preventing it the genius uh, construction, the the, the genius system that uh, a group of white males constructed many years ago of checks and balances and certain kinds of constraints on power, and then the whole state system within that and the federalism that holds it kind of together, is that not the constraint? Is that not what prevents it from getting there?
1: No, I don't think that's uh, I, I mean, this, that's not part of the book at all, uh, because I'll, I'll get to answering the question and I'll answer your question in a second. Uh, the Soviet Union, I think, is unambiguous, unambiguously, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you realize this is, especially in contemporary times, malevolent and something to be avoided at all costs. Now, which party is going to get us to authoritarianism? Each is going to point the finger at the other. That's a separate issue. I do not think the Constitution has been an effective bulwark uh, as much as it's proclaimed against government encroachment. Uh, It used to be a felony to to explain to someone, even verbally, how to get uh, prophylactics. It uh, There have been very few gun restrictions that have been struck down by the Supreme Court in the last century until very, very recently. So these are two very easy examples. And the reason checks and balances don't work is why would I, as a president, nominate a Supreme Court justice who's going to restrict my power? And why would I, as a congressman, as a senator specifically, pass a Supreme Court justice that's going to restrict my power? All the incentives are in the other direction.
0: And yet... And so we've slid that way at times, and certainly maybe now, and yet we've managed not to go all the way. And are you saying that, what is that, you know, the practice of democracy, as de Tocqueville called it? Is that an anachronism of the British institutions that we came from? What, what has held us back then?
1: I think it's civil society, which is precisely the non-political aspects of our country. I think it's American culture. I think it's American philosophy and the ideas that were behind the Constitution, which it tried to kind of invoke and implement. Um, That, to me, is a far bigger bulwark against what you're describing than expecting uh, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy to stand up and fight for the Constitution.
0: Interesting. I I always get... um overwhelmed and sad, as you know, when I talk to you, and you have to kind of bring why? me back periodically. Well, yeah, I know that's what you say. You, that's, a, you, that's why you, how you bring me back. So, so you've made the case uh, for a, a utopian divorce,
1: right? No, not at all. Why, was it, why no. would any divorce no. be utopian?
0: Well, a, a one that is a better situation than we're in now, perhaps.
1: Wait, wait. Okay, to go from better to utopia, it's like you know. It, well, hey, the reason Drew, I say it'd be utopian, for, hold on, be, it'd be better for us to go to one restaurant than another. Oh, you utopian. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the reason I say that is because divorces are never good. They're always bad. Am my, I my thinking? And so, any, to, I, I mean, they're always maybe costly. the process of divorce. Yeah, maybe the process is what's bad. I, I don't know, but I've never. I, I've. I, I can't think of anybody. I, I, people have felt it's the right thing to do and that they're glad they've done it, but they did not like the, they didn't, was not a, they would rather almost have not done it, even though it might've been the right thing to do for them.
1: Well, I'll quote Thomas Sowell, who said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So I don't dispute what you're saying in the slightest, that any divorce, whether personal or national is going to be difficult and tricky. But the Mm. question is, as compared to what? Uh, as compared to the status quo. And I think for myself, in increasing numbers of Americans, the status quo is intolerable.
0: What what about a loose federalism? What what about something which is really what the original idea of a more perfect union was, I
1: think? It's easier to abolish a government than to significantly shrink its power. Uh, There's no mechanism and there's no incentive in Washington to, uh, including among conservative Republicans, to in any effective way, shrink the size of DC we saw this when you have a Democratic president, Democratic Congress, Republican president, Republican Congress, Democratic president, Republican Congress, and Republican Congress and Democratic uh, Cong- Republican president, Democratic Congress. In no combination of those was there even a, a suggestion or attempt to shrink the size of the federal b- budget by one dollar.
0: You were in your in your uh, case for American secession. Well, let's just, I want to start with the principle of secession, first of all. You know, according to Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, you can't have secession. It's, it's not a logic inherent in the contract of the Federalist Union, unless both sides agree or all parties agree,
1: right? No, I, uh, George Washington was a secessionist, and I, I respect him a lot more than Jackson or Lincoln, who killed, both killed many numbers of their own countrymen.
0: And, and what, what
1: was, a, what was Washington's logic? I'm not aware of it. He, we were part of the British empire. He said, I want to secede from Great Britain. A lot of people said, you're crazy. You can't beat the most powerful army in the world. All you have behind you is a bunch of white trash. You don't have even have shoes. He constantly had to retreat. And lo and behold, at a certain point, what had been impossible became perceived as inevitable. Mm.
0: And, but where is, the, where is the logic of secession from the United States?
1: It's the same principle, we seceded from Great Britain and now a portion of the the United States we're just gonna carry it forward. We've already had internal secessions before. Uh, Maine used to be part of Massachusetts until 1820, people don't even realize that. And of course, West Virginia and Virginia are another obvious example.
0: No, it's interesting that you're using the word secession for the American Revolution. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me that if you were talking to King George, he would, I think, call it an insurrection, right? the colonies were in revolt, not that they were trying to secede. And that was Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Jackson's logic too, which is that's why Lincoln called the South Confederates, the Confederates so-called, because he did not believe there was any legal framework for secession other than insurrection that needed to be brought back in proper alignment. And you reject all that logic.
1: I am not interested in how kings perceive my rights, my country, or my freedom, number one. And as I think everyone realizes, what is legal is what the people in power decide is legal. If the South had been allowed to secede, they would have retroactively said, oh, they had the right all along. And in fact, before the Civil War, there was a huge movement in New England to secede because the argument was no union with slaveholders. So the right for a country to divide itself, it's it's just kind of crazy to me that America has to be perpetual when no country on earth has ever had that uh, kind of need and demand that it's gonna live forever.
0: Hmm. Is, is 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 the wording in our constitution about perpetuity?
1: I think it is, right? There's wording in the constitution about the second amendment. There's wording about free speech. The First Amendment guaranteed the right of people to peaceably assemble. No one even bothered to invoke that during the lockdowns, during COVID. So it is very much mm-hmm. a dead letter.
0: Tell me more about that. How did you feel about uh, the excesses that we got into during
1: COVID? I think what the COVID uh, situation happened caused was given giving some, ve- by design or otherwise, gave some very nefarious people, some very useful information, about the limits of American and international compliance to edicts.
0: Isn't it weird the whole world complied? The enti- except Africa. They didn't need to. They didn't, they didn't bother. Uh, and they did fine. I don't think it's but weird rest, at all.
1: I think human, be- human beings are naturally compliant with those who are in authority. And we've had decades of a media operation and an educational system, especially in the West, designed to train people to be subservient and to bend the knee.
0: And, oh, my wife is reacting to everything you're saying. She's out here saying, "Preach!" I think, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. truth. And she said, "True, true, speak." She said true. <laughs> um, and, and so, if we have some sort of um, disunion, some sort of disunion, um, well, you let me ask something else. You you brought up in the uh, case for the secession in the in the article. You talked about the South being the whipping boy. Uh, because of their uh, history with slavery. I noticed you, I'm very focused on reconstruction uh, in that I really believe strongly that much of the trauma that is being sort of, uh, you know, uh, echo in the echoes of trauma. I mean, obviously slavery was, you know, traumatic and horrible, but the reconstruction was perhaps, I I don't want to say worse, but another layer of violence that people seem to have forgotten about. At least at least the general um American mind seems unaware that this was a time of roving warlords just just indiscriminately killing black people. It was terrible. Uh and so I, there's I, a period there. Go ahead.
1: I, I I thought you were also something else where effectively the South, the former Confederacy, became Afghanistan. They were under-occupied by what they regard as foreign territory. Uh, And then they, you know, what they had to put up with, they took it out on those who are weaker than them, which is human nature, which is, as you said, the black people. So no one in the North gave a crap about these former slaves.
0: It's a little more complicated as I understand it, which is that, uh, of course, when you, uh, the the circumstance you're talking about is exactly what happened. But there was going, there was planned to be a much heavier hand of, occupation and, and supervision. And what ended up happening under Andrew, ja- under Johnson, the federal government just backed off and the and the Democratic Congress just gave those sort of um, uh, I don't want to say rights and privileges, but set up circumstances much like you're describing where that, that's exactly what happened. These frustrated people acted out on on those who they felt as responsible for the circumstance.
1: Wait, I don't, I don't know what you're referring to because wasn't the Congress exclusively or overwhelmingly held by radical Republicans for many years after the Civil War? What, what Democratic Congress are you referring to?
0: And my understanding was there, was there was, Grant couldn't get anything done because of the Congress. And there was a complete, uh, my understanding and as a reading of this, is they completely, I don't know if they had a majority or not, but they completely cowed to the, the Democratic influence and the Democratic oh, uh, administrations in the various states set up. Uh, and it, I mean, you can blame it on Andrew Johnson or whatever else, else was going on in, in the mix, but it, it was a set of policies that allowed all that to happen. It didn't have to happen like that. I mean, Abraham Lincoln sort of had a plan. I mean, he wanted people to go back to their homes, but he wanted to, you know, get things back in alignment. And his plan was to have a lot of African Americans in pl- p- positions of authority. And and uh, his elected plan office. was to
1: deport former slaves. He said no, that that was before the the, Blacks- the, that was.
0: The, not later, not later. Really, the, the, Frederick the, what's it called—the Corwin
1: Amendment? Corwin Amendment? Let me look this he, up right now.
0: He he talked about that maybe as long as midway through the war, but and he's always said I would I would prefer the you know reestablish the Union than than save the slaves, but he his ideas were considerably changed across the war, and Frederick Douglass well, was yes. in my opinion a big a big reason for those changes. I mean, he convinced him of any of, any as frederick doug has pointed out he remained a white supremacist he remained you know eurocentric yeah. white you know in his thinking for sure but he he really saw it's his job to bring black americans into citizenship into the process now you can argue about how he got there and was it you know militarily expedient and all that kind of stuff but but i i do believe in strongly that although he was a can be seen as a white, again, this term white supremacy, we, we, everyone bristles when they hear it, they think of some sort of skinhead. No, I mean, he was Eurocentric, white in his thinking. He felt there was a natural tendency for white ascension. He for sure was in that camp, for sure. But he also felt in the, he he was a big believer in the uh, Declaration of Independence and the opening ideas in that as all men created equal and wanted to get that right.
1: But he wasn't a big fan of the idea of independence as you just said. And to your point, uh, even after the Civil War and despite Reconstruction, I think it's almost impossible for anyone to say with a straight face that the South and the North or what had formerly been the Confederacy and the Northeast states have the same culture or are, are you know, in any effective way, the same country other than on its face and decreasingly so in recent years.
0: It, it, where, and where do you live now? You live in Austin, the Republic in of Texas. So you're in the South. And and Texas is yet another thing, right? Texas is different again, right? Texas has its own history of uh, autonomy and craziness, (laughs) lots of craziness in Texas history. Uh, And you can feel the difference. And and in the
1: Texas Republican Party platform in the last year, A referendum to uh, demand that Texas declare its independence is now part of the official Republican Party platform in Texas. So I agree with you that there's a lot of craziness here, and I revel in it, because what is crazy to one person just means to the other. We're not going to have an argument. You're just, there's no point in having discussion any further. And that's exactly what I want.
0: Let's say, (laughs) let's say that uh, Texas (laughs) decides to secede, okay, Uh, and let's say they you know, start that process of whatever that might look like. Do you think there's a world where the American military steps in and prevents that?
1: Yes. Of
0: course. Attempts of course. to. So, okay. So how would this work? How would the divorce actually operationally, how would it work?
1: Well, you just gave one example. One way it would work is Texas says, all right, we're a republic again. And then they're like, okay, done. So that's one easy way. Uh, another way would be if uh, certain other states decided to join with Texas or America could be split into four. If we're talking about what it would look like, I'm delighted because if you and I are going, if I'm trying to sell you a car and you're arguing about what features the car should have, I've kind of done my job.
0: <laughs> I'm just exploring. Am I wrong? Michael. I, uh, yeah, no, I like the idea. I mean, you certainly have what you call foot in the door, right? Uh, foot in the door. and And i'll say one more thing
1: to everybody else listening if if it was 2015 14 which is very recent and i asked everyone listening to this which of the following things is more likely to you that texas is going to declare that it's its own country again or that donald trump is going to be the nominee and the president 99 percent of people would say texas
0: (laughs) yes you're right you're right so did trump did 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 trump do something to hasten this process do you think and if so what
1: i think I think he's done an enormous job, thankfully, in further dividing America. I think he's done a great job in having people recognize that political discourse is often not only pointless, but counterproductive. Uh, And I think he's created these silos, which so many people in corporate media bemoan, but which I delight in, where people are more ideologically self-segregating and choosing to live alongside people who think and act like them.
0: I rem- I don't think I told you this last time we talked, but I, I remember that uh, I was reading something about Osama bin Laden's philosophy and plan. One of his major objectives was to try to turn us into fifty independent countries, independent republics or countries or something. Uh, are we merely uh, on the on the road that he established, and are we uh, falling victim to something that some outside force put in
1: place? Well let's follow this logic. If Osama bin Laden wanted New York City to be destroyed, does that mean it shouldn't be destroyed? Of course it should be destroyed. So in some, just because Osama bin Laden says something doesn't mean that it's, yeah, you heard me, doesn't mean that it's wrong. Uh, we can't keep making our decisions just doing the opposite of what bad people say. Uh, that is a complete logical fallacy. And I'm not saying that it should be 50 countries at all. I'm just worried about Texas and everyone else can you know blank off.
0: And then as far as uh, your opening comment about, you know, the, the evil intent and evil empire, we have uh, a leader in China that people are very concerned about. Aren't you concerned that this dissociation would put us at the whim of these folks?
1: I, I, I to be honest, I don't understand this argument. Let's talk it through because I, I do respect your opinion. Okay. Let's suppose America splits into two countries. One's 175 million, one's 175 canada has like 35 million south korea has like 70. japan has 100 million i don't understand how we become the next target and if texas secedes for example china is just going to go for for texas this this argument makes no sense to me now i agree with you that we should be extremely concerned about chinese influence that the chinese government is other than perhaps north korea one of the most malevolent governments on earth that said it is much easier in my opinion for a uh, um America that has separated to be free of Chinese influence than have us be united under media centers in New York and Washington who are under the thumb of Chinese influence.
0: Do you think that uh, when you say under the thumb of Chinese influence, were they a major player in some of the uh, lockdown decisions that were made and some of the stupid decisions that were made during COVID? And what's the evidence for that? As you said, the media is under the influence of China. What, What do we know?
1: Well, I just mean how, how the media reports on certain things. When you have movies that are exported to China, they're kind of edited so you know, as not to offend Chinese sensibilities. I think websites so like search engines, they are very much bend the knee as opposed to Google's old slogan of first do no evil, right? Now they're just going to kowtow and, and accommodate the Chinese influence. So I'm not referring to things like, like elections or that. I'm not, or, excuse me, COVID. I do not, I'm not informed about what China did at all in that regard vis a vis lockdowns but the fact that universally the behaviors were the same i would describe that much more to a lemming effect than rather than every country on earth is under chinese control
0: it it was the you know the evidence suggests that that what happened was is our so-called public health leaders sent people to talk to their counterparts in china and were hoodwinked by them frankly into adopting yeah into adopting what was a political maneuver uh, and were sort of convinced that it was a medical intervention that had absolute uh, efficacy. I mean, it's just insane, insane that we adopted these policies that the CCP put in place so as not to save face. Were there a leak from the Wuhan lab, uh, and we adopted them whole, whole, whole hog, uh, and advised Italy to do the same. And then when we did so, the whole world followed us. Which again. Maybe the best thing about some sort of American dissociation would be uh the, the uh, stopping the rest of the world from continually following us in our following us in, in when we get into fallacies and 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 problematic behaviors and culture
1: well i do you think that if the Republic of Texas reasserts itself, it would have been that amenable to Chinese influence and suggestion? I certainly don't
0: no, no, no. no. It would have been the the People's Republic of California would have been right there with them.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, I see my wife getting very interested in what you're saying. Do you have any any comments you want to make? You're you're sort of agitated by this.
2: No, you're doing a great job. <laughs>
0: uh, well, now I want to hear your thoughts. Are you and so? Because I know you're very concerned about China. I mean,
2: I can see why we sh- you know should think about splitting everything up. But does isolate the uh, well, it sort of... Pathogen. S- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it takes, it takes, th- it moves things around, but I don't want to get stuck with organ.
1: That's the
0: reason she doesn't want to do it because she might get stuck with Oregon. You're stuck with California. I mean We're
2: already in California.
0: (laughs) You're already stuck with California. You don't want to you don't want to you don't want want Wash we don't want the People's Republic of Oregon, Washington, and California too much. We'll just call that North Korea.
1: (laughs) West Korea. Oh
0: my gosh. (laughs) That is so funny. You know, uh complete sidebar. I um Heard your buddy Lex Friedman talking to a psychiatrist in one of his recent podcasts. Did you, did you hear that one? That psychiatrist was
1: <laughs> hey, a robot. Or a psychiatrist walking to a bar. <laughs> I.
0: I. I, I That's why I brought it up to you. One of the reasons I brought it up to you is that is that his his robotness came through loud and clear. I, your theory, I think, is absolutely correct. I think. I think if you, if you listen to that, it sort of proves your point. Not proves your point establishes the fact that he's a robot. The 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 uh the psychiatrist who was you know (laughs) mental health professionals come (laughs) along. Can I say
1: something? Yeah, go ahead. Hey doctor, I have a problem sleeping at night. Sometimes I think I'm a one, but what if I'm a zero?
0: (laughs) <laughs> That's him, uh, but he uh, and and by the way, I'm I am uh, I am a uh, acolyte. I I I love his podcast. It's how I got exposed to you. I'm I'm a big fan of his. Uh, but it was really interesting to me as somebody who's deep in this material. And again, mental health professionals can agree and disagree on a lot of stuff. But this guy that was talking to him, I thought was absolutely spot on. Not only in what he was saying, but the way he was able to describe it. And he was talking about some of the fundamental principles of how human psychological landscapes and personalities are constructed. Uh, Lex could not get it. He was like talking to a robot. He could not understand it. And I, w- I was just dying when I was listening to it. I thought, Man. <laughs> and I thought, uh, and I have to go on his show, Mike. You're gonna have to help Michael. You have to help me with that. Maybe I'll go on with you. <laughs> but he, he. Uh,
1: Why don't you put what? us both on the couch? because we both have the same background, that would be such a fun episode.
0: If we could do something like that, you you both are extremely different. Trust me, you're very, very different people. Um, but but he, um, it was really, and I, yeah, th- I thought have- to Why? myself, I thought, and, but here's my thought, even let's say he's not a robot just for the sake of argument. Uh, <laughs> really? he, I thought to myself, uh, man, we have to really, help people understand how humans work. People don't under, even somebody as brilliant as Lex doesn't get how humans really work. And I thought, wow, I, we have a job to do here. Go ahead.
1: I, I disagree in this regard. One of the reasons I wrote the North Korea book is because there was this uh, idea in the public consciousness that they're crazy. And I'm like, these people follow a internal logic. It has worked very well for them. They've sustained their country far longer than the Soviet Union or other empires. So calling them crazy is just a confession that you don't understand how they work or think. And I think there is a strong aversion in popular uh, thinking and behavior to try to see things from other points of view. Like if I sat somebody down and be like, we need to look at things from Bin Laden's point of view, you sound like you're a Bin Laden sympathizer where it's supposed to. It's like, wait a minute, don't you want to know what Al-Qaeda is going to do next? That's extremely crucial for anyone who's under attack, but they don't think like that.
0: No, I think, I think what I call listening to, trying to understand what's across the table from you. Whenever you're in any, any kind of dialogue over anything with other humans, you got to Put your head in theirs and try to understand their point of view it's very it's not as easy to do and so i've been doing that the whole pandemic trying to understand like for instance just a simple uh, sort of version of that is the excessive push to vaccinate children i'm like what what are they thinking what what is in their head that they think this is the right thing to do and and i i can't get it yet i uh you know typically you can kind of understand what's going on i We'll see if they can give me that information at some point.
1: But that would be a lot of fun. Something else you've had to deal with in your practice is that people are often very inarticulate, even about their own thoughts and emotions. So rather than reacting to someone saying at face value, take a second and try to be between the lines because a lot of times they're very bad at expressing and just be focused on what they're saying instead of what they're trying to express. You're going to completely miss it.
0: That's right. No, that's exactly right. And, and and you can, and it's okay to ask, you know, explain, understand, try to get my head around it, help me help me understand it. But y- you got to understand other people's experiences, it, it is vitally important, um, even if it's a robot. Uh, yeah. So 1111? Yeah. So, <laughs> one, 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 one. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was gonna say, you know, you you mentioned you just sort of tilted at the fact that uh, I've had some similar experience to yourself and Lexis, which is that by uh, grandfather was uh, Ukrainian. My grandmother was Belarusian, but they lived in Ukraine. And uh, they, my grandmother, used to describe well. So, so there was a giant diaspora from Ukraine uh, at the beginning yeah. of the 20th century and Belarus. Giant, and people aren't aware that this was the case. Mostly yeah. Jews, because they were the they were the targets. Uh, this was leading up to the Holodomor, which was the famine that there the, uh, what do they call it? Would they move everybody around? The, uh, cultural, the Kula, the gulags were, were set up and the no, family, um, kulaks. Yeah. My, my, my family ran away, ran away, was part of the diaspora in response to what was happening in the lead up to that. And, uh, I think I explained this to you and I'll do it again. My grandmother used to call it the bandits, that bandits would come through their town and mm-hmm. destroy everything. And again, the Jews were the targets and yep. the, 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 Suggestion is in retrospect that that was either the czarists, the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, or just plain old criminals running, running around like world warlords just destroying stuff to, for their own advantage. Is that, is that probably what was going on at that time?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the the level of anti-Semitism in in, uh, what became the Soviet Union was just astronomical uh, and it was very much part of the government. So when the the government, which had had a lot of Jews in the government, uh, did something bad, it was the fault of the Jews. And when the government wasn't working, it was the fault the Jews were undermining it. So that tradition goes back for centuries in what became uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and the thing that was kind of interesting, you brought up Lex. Uh, when I was on his show a couple episodes ago, I was talking about what my family went through and my grandmother was, you know, was trying to flee the Nazis and survive the Holocaust. And I was kind of it brought me teary eyed because you try to imagine someone who was in your own family where your choices are either being murdered by the Nazis or living in a state of constant hunger, where all you could think about every day is bread, bread, bread. And of course, some of the Nazis. Commentators are like, "Oh, you talk about the Holocaust some more. Why don't you talk about the Holocaust more?" And I'm like, "Well, I am. I'm oh. Like, let me get this book out the door." So <laughs> yeah, hope the Nazis are happy now. <laughs> I doubt that they will be.
0: Oh. oh my god, it's so weird that that. Yeah, I. And what scares me almost more than anything else is that people in this country are not just unaware of the founding principles of of what set this up and, and you know how we got to where we are and what the, what the shared traumas were and the shared ideas and the ideas upon which this was all founded, there seems to be very little uh, awareness of history at all. And so the things you're talking about are completely missed for sure.
1: Well, that's by design. I think the media tries to keep people in a state of perpetual present um where if there's something contradictory two years ago if they don't talk about it it doesn't occur in popular consciousness the greatest analogy to this is if you have some kind of soap opera right and a dynasty from the 80s i'm going to show my age there was one season where i think his character's named adam he rapes this girl named kirby and two seasons later he's marrying her and no one just talks about it right so it's kind of like well in the context of that show if they don't talk about it, it didn't really happen or it's not relevant and it's the same thing like if there's something that happened four years ago I remember, here's one easy example. Uh, Greece uh, was going to default on their debt with the EU and they were on the verge yeah. of it, it, voting in a radical leftist government and they did and they never brought it up again. If we didn't send ground troops into Syria, there was going to be a genocide of the Kurds. This is another Holocaust. we were talking about this every month, every day on TV. We have to do this, we have to do this. We didn't try to send in the troops to Syria, they just stopped talking about it. So there is very much this perpetual present that's by design in corporate media.
0: And who who's, who's the orchestrator? Who, why is that being designed in that way? What is, who is there? Because I, I was in corporate media for a long time. And the, at the time, there was never anybody questioning anything I said until I said something they got mad about. But, but they were not, there was no day-in, day-out kind of
1: orchestration that I was aware of. You, you don't need an orchestration. If I'm writing a soap opera, right, I'm not thinking, well, five seasons ago, otherwise, unless I want to introduce a new storyline. It's very much what's happening today, what's happening this week. And if you're going to provide context that makes things complicated for people and it makes the conversation less nuanced, then that's exactly what they're fighting against. And it's also harder to kind of guide the populace in the direction that you would like.
0: But you're, but you're saying then guide the, we were just trying to get ratings. That, that was always the, that was always the mandate from above, get, get eyes. And you know, you're right. You couldn't do anything complicated. You have to just do things, you have to sort of what one of my producers used to call make something happen. There had to be some conflict on TV and that was it. And that was it. That's all you worried about at the time. And I, I worried about trying to get good information out, but there was the, the corporate part of it was, and you know, I, I tell this story. I remember seeing a 60 minute style interview when I was a kid and this thing stayed with me vividly. I think I brought this up for you before. We'll bring it up for this audience was this 60 minutes style interview was hammering on a Soviet journalist. You know, how can you do this? How can you distort what you say on behalf of the government? How can you do the, how can you push out propaganda? And finally, the guy got frustrated. He looked up at the, the American reporter and went, Hey, in our country, the news media journalism is a political enterprise in yours. It's a commercial enterprise. You will have, and do have distortions because of that. And I, that stayed with me till this moment. And I think I think that's what we're seeing the the playing out of as we had the twenty four hour news cycle, multiple cable channels, everything's on YouTube and you know social media. They're competing for eyes, and they're going to places that are not good and not good for the populace.
1: I th- I wish it were as simple as that because if that were the case, they'd be more they'd be more interested in trying to change their strategy when they're losing their eyeballs. When as from my perspective, oftentimes when they're going in a political direction, they're losing eyeballs, they will blame the eyeballs. It's the fault of the audience for being too X, Y or Z. Uh, and they will continue to double down on their politics in fact i very, remember very vividly after t- 2016 dean banquet i think is his name who's the head of the new york times said all right we we blundered we missed this by a long shot we're going to be more amenable to what uh you know the trump voters are saying and that went out the window in two days now on um, to play devil's advocate <laughs> going against trump constantly did num- great numbers for their sales but yeah. One of the things I uncovered in the White Pill was to what extent, it wasn't just what was happening in the Soviet Union. It was to what extent Western apologists were, uh, were making excuses for things like show trials, where people were confessing to things that were literally impossible, to concentration camps, to starving millions of people by design. Uh, and this wasn't done for, simply for ratings. This was done for ideological reasons.
0: Okay, I want to I'm going to take a little break. And I want to pick back up with that the the Western apologists were really egregious in the first half of the 20th century and in response to what was going on in Russia. So Michael Malice, everybody, uh, besides buying the white pill, do you want to send anybody a particular website?
1: I I apologize in advance for my Twitter, which is twitter.com slash Michael Malice and my YouTube's Michael Malice official.
0: Fair fair enough. That'll he's apologizing ahead of time. So I suggest you check it out. We'll be we'll be right back. not sure how to say i love you this valentine's day well nothing says i love you more than a few minutes of relaxation and genucell skin care does just that gives you the luxury gift of feeling like you spent the entire day in the spa all while in fact in the comfort of your own home susan loves to feel pampered and special especially on valentine's day so why not relax with a detoxifying mask and feel amazing after only one use i know i'm a
2: snob about the products i use on my face everybody knows it every time i go to the dermatologist's office they're just rows and rows of different creams retinols vitamin c cream under eye cream night creams scrubs. and then when i get to the counter they're overpriced all kinds of products that you can all find at genucell.com i've fallen in love with this product at a fraction of the price i've been using genucell for six months now and I'm very impressed.
0: Genucel's mask works wonders by pulling out all of your imperfections to make you feel refreshed and looking like you just stepped out of a facial appointment. Order the Dr. Drew package today and try this amazing mask for free. That's right, every single Dr. Drew and Susan package includes a free mask to celebrate you and your loved one on this Valentine's Day. Go to geniusellcom Drew and enter code Drew for an extra 10% off your entire purchase. Plus, all orders are upgraded to priority shipping for free. That's Genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot slash D-R-E-W. Despite the U.S. blowing through the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling this January, the White House and the government still refuses to reduce spending. When it comes to fiscal responsibility, you can't afford to bury your head in the sand. Now would be a great time to consider gold with Birch Gold. In times of high uncertainty and instability, gold is king. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Visit birchgold.com to claim your free information kit, the info kit on gold, and then talk to one of their precious metals specialists. Think about this. To dig our country out of this mountain of debt, every single taxpayer in the country would have to write a check for $247,000 and of course they're not, so it's only getting worse. Protect yourself with gold today by visiting BirchGold.com/drew. That is B-I-R-C-H Gold.com/drew. With an A+ plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, you can trust Birch Gold to protect your future. Here's what I want you to do: visit birchgoldcom true today. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family, dogs, cats, even horses, in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7 P-E-T-C-L-U-B 247, Pet Club 247. And we are back with one and only Michael Malice. Michael Malice at Twitter and I believe Instagram as well. The book is called The White Pill. And before the break, we were talking about how there were really, uh, well, if I remember right, Michael, there was one journalist in particular that went over to Russia and actually won a Pulitzer Prize or something, if I remember uh, and oh, no, was, no, no, no. is that right? Wait, am I, the, the good am guy I remembering the this history guy? properly? The bad guy, the bad guy that, that went over the there guy, yeah. and, uh, bought everything they yeah, bought everything they were feeding him and, uh, and knew he was being censored and still went and presented this excessive glowing report. T- talk to me about that guy. I forget his name.
1: Uh, Walter Durante, he actually, his yeah. one of his claims to fame is that he was friends with Aleister Crowley and stole his girlfriend and later married her. He was one of the most evil human beings who ever lived. He got an interview, uh, I detail him at length here in The White Pill. He was the New York Times man in Washington, in, in, excuse me, in Moscow. And when mm-hmm. Gareth Jones, who was an independent, very young reporter, um, decided to... Uh, um. My alarm's going off to remind me to do Dr. Drew. One second. Hold on a second.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Yeah, good. You wouldn't have forgotten us. Yeah, this is is a hair-raising story. We hear what this guy did. It's awful. Gareth
1: Jones, uh, the Soviets were very big on controlling the information that left the Soviet Union. If you're a reporter uh, in the Soviet Union from the West, you had to get everything filed through a censor. So that heavily encouraged you to self-censor because if I want to file a story and I know you know Drew's going to look over it Well, Drew could also say, let me talk to my supervisor. I don't know who your supervisor is. I can never get a hold of him. So it's very hard for me to get information out. So that was one mechanism they used. But there was someone named Gareth Jones, young reporter. They were not allowing anyone to go to Ukraine. He took a train to Ukraine and got off a stop early. And then he started wandering the countryside. And he saw what was being done to these people in these villages. And here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Your own body would betray you. So the activists from the government would come get any grain you had, any food you had, then they'd come back at night to search your house. If they found anything, they'd wreck the house and put you out in the street naked. You can't go to another town. You have no money and you were forced to starve. And if they saw you were not leaning out in your face, they knew you were a hoarder and that food is government property. So he went from village to village and they told him, we have no hope. We're doomed. He reported this to the West and Walter Duranty, the guy from the New York Times, led a cavalcade of Western journalists to say that this is all lies, this is anti-Soviet propaganda, you guys don't get it. 16-page article, I believe, the New York Times, front headline, there is no starvation, uh, Russians are merely tightening their belts, there's no famine, nor is there likely to be. Uh, years later, Walter Duranty admitted, oops, uh, I guess I got it wrong. Um, but for me, when you're saying, oops, I got it, guess I got it wrong, when you're talking about starving millions of people and denouncing the reporters who did their footwork and saying reporters shouldn't go into these towns. There's nothing to see here. The only people complaining are loud mouths. Everyone else is busy farming. That just speaks to how, what drives me crazy when these like boomer conservatives are like the press was honest. When I was a kid, it was always some of the worst people imaginable.
0: It's just, it just we they they went through, we went through a period where it was better, and we'd forgotten what could have happened and what did happen. And let's be fair, the this doesn't that playbook sound very familiar to what we've all just been through recently with disinformation and misinformation and uh, you know misinformation czars. We're going to keep the Ministry of Truth, you uh, know, in, in line. This is all too familiar to the present moment when people who try to say something real about what's going on are being crushed.
1: I, I was just on Jimmy Dore show, a uh, comedian and podcaster, and he had this amazing bit, I was peeing my pants as a result of it. There you go, thank you, there's a headline. Uh, and Jimmy Dore said, they're try, they try to make it out, don't do your own research, right? You're not a doctor, you're not an expert. And Jimmy Dore's like, that's called reading. He goes, they're trying to make yeah. it that reading is what stupid people do. Oh. You're looking things up, reading your own art. That's you're doing some reading over there. What are you, some kind of idiot? It's just when, yeah. you, when you think about it, it's just really kind of deranged, but yet effective.
0: I, I do. I do think it's all the sort of uh, vacuum left behind by the distrust that's been fomented and people do have to go have sources they can rely on like, like, I'm a good reader of medical literature. I'm not as good as Vinaya Prasad. I go to him, I I watch what he reads, I listen to what he says, I go back to literature and uh, found him to be just, some people can just penetrate the literature. You got to have those people around to help you. They're like consultants, they can really help you get things when you when you're relying solely on yourself. I kind of understand that that's a risky proposition, but I do recommend that people read and educate themselves and do the best they can nevertheless.
1: But you also say where you drew your opinions from, where people can go, I'm saying this based on this article or this person, No, you're not saying, hey, trust me, I'm Dr. Drew. You're saying, this is how I came to this conclusion. And now they're in a position to be like, okay, I don't trust this Dr. Drew guy. Let me look where he's talking about and let me look at other sources. That is very different from trust the science. Who do you think you are? And the fact that people who have never stepped stepped foot in a medical school will tell you who is a real doctor, not a Dr. Jill doctor, that you don't know you're talking about when it comes to medicine, but that just speaks to the arrogance that is put forward by corporate media to its adherents.
0: I completely agree i I you know have always said you know journalists don't or are, they aren't expert in anything they they and they're always looking for a story and in biology the story is no story there's no story if you have a narrative in biology you're taking it down to a kindergarten level to help somebody understand it not because there's a story there because the reality is much more complicated back to listen to the science i I thought of something that day I thought you would like prior to the 20th century uh, government excesses, we had divine rights of kings and we had monarchies that were extremely, uh, potentially dictatorial. And I would argue that Louis XIV was probably the prime example of that. Would you agree that he was the sort of one of the shining example of centralized I don't think, dictatorial I don't authority?
1: Think would, no, I think there's a lot of kings who are much more malevolent than him.
0: I, I didn't say I agree more malevolent well let me'll me tell you we'll tell you why I'm framing it that way. you know he is famous okay. for having said this I am the state right l'état c'est moi right right Well, okay l'état c'est moi uh, everyone I knew until this year maybe or last year would looked at him with tremendous disdain for having that kind of centralized dictatorial attitude about himself that everything is about him, the state um, be careful everybody we just had a guy stand up and say, I'm the science, I'm the science. That is not far off from l'état c'est moi. It really isn't. And that, that, should, that kind of thing should make a shudder when bureaucrats tell you that they are fill in the blank authority.
1: Well, you know, as an anarchist, I agree with your second point, but he was right. He was the state. He's the king. In a monarchy, the king is the state. So it it might sound kind of shocking to contemporary ears, but I don't think he was saying anything that's particularly controversial in his time.
0: No, no, no. I I agree. What I'm saying is we had... This citizens of this country looked at that oh, I, kind yeah. of yeah. monarchical authority with great disdain and, and you know, like, like, thank goodness that's past. And yet here we have leaders and bureaucrats in our current government saying things that sound like echoes of that past.
1: But I think I'm just going to quote H.L. Mencken, the great kind of curmudgeon of the early 20th century, when he said the average man does not want to be free, he merely wants to be safe. And I think if anyone thinks that the way to freedom is to persuade a majority of your fellows that liberty should be their highest value, you are playing a fool's errand.
0: Well, safe, of course, you know, I I think that and, and survival, you know, when you really get down to it. But if you have those things in place, I would argue that freedom
1: becomes a very quickly an important priority, No. For most people, no, most people are very happy to have large sections of their decision-making outsourced to others. And as long as they have a TV set and some kind of, this, there's a reason why Brave New World resonates so effectively even today, uh, how many decades after it's been written. It's much easier to manage a population through bread and circuses than it is through fear.
0: I wanna go back to what Garrett saw in the Ukraine Uh, if I'm, if I remember right, not only did the government come after you, if you had any food or looked like you had had food, didn't the Ukrainians start to turn on each other? If anybody looked healthy or fed that they would be not just ostracized, but there could be violence against them. Right?
1: Right. So the media did an effective job in the Soviet union of blaming the kulaks, which is these rich landowners, which effectively basically meant anyone they didn't like, uh, you're starving because in, the, in Ukraine, they're hoarding their food. Now, I have no idea what's going on in Ukraine because my media is not reporting that to me. So any of these Ukrainians who fled Ukraine and tried to get their own food on the other part of Russia, they were blamed for that which they were fleeing and was imposed on them. And there is a scene in, in the book, which was very disturbing for me to research and write about, where there was this young girl just begging with a crumb of bread in her hand on a line outside a supermar- uh, supermarket, a, gross, a store, and the shopkeep looking at the people waiting online, daring them to help her because like you're going to help an enemy of the people. And she died on the spot. And basically, the idea is like, good, you deserved it. We're hungry because of you and people like you. So these totalitarian governments are very effective at scapegoating. You know, Emmanuel Goldstein in 1984, you find a section of the populace and you're miserable because they're undermining this great plan that the rest of us have.
0: Why did the Jews so, op- so often through history become the object of that? And, and by the way, I find it especially odd given that Belarus for hundreds of years encouraged uh, Jews to come and be professionals and develop uh, their society. The Duke of Belarus organized things around them. Why, why
1: always the scapegoating, do you think? First of all, tradition, it's easy. Right. So if there's something in the ether that, you know, if you learned 50 years ago that it, it was the Jews fault or they got kicked out of some country, if something goes wrong nowadays, nowadays, I could just point to that and they'd be like, oh, yeah, I heard about this from my grandma. She was right. I was duped. That's one. The other reason is Jews were both isolated and self-isolating. And then when you have an outsider group who's alien to the broader culture it's very easy to create, the, cause them to really be the outsider group and to pin a lot of things on them. And also Jewish success compared to non-Jewish success in many of these countries was the source of uh, great tension as well. And if you're going to be the moneylenders, as you know, many Jews were driven to, it's very easy to have a way of debt relief. It's like, all right, you don't have to pay them off their, their debts. You get to be the good guys, the politician, and they get to be the villains.
0: How about the role of envy and narcissism and all this? It's certainly playing a big function now. Do you think it through history that's been a big deal?
1: I, well, I, I'm not a historian or, or a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I think envy—I I don't know—that's per se what I would put it at the foot of. But I think when you have this kind of nomad, the diaspora, and this—you have it even today in certain circles. Like people regard Black Americans as a historical accident, and they'll also say, "Get over slavery." Well, which is it if you're getting over slavery, you're not going to look at them as a historical accident. And if you're looking at them like they're only here because of slavery, well, then that's over and you have to accept them. So it's very easy to find and every country Britain, it's the Irish. Uh, I'm sure there's someone in Canada. Every country has a population and they're kind of have their own weird thing. And when things get tough, it's easy to say, I think we're suffering because of those weirdos over there.
0: What do we do today with with the media? We've sort of, we've brought it forward from where the media was duplicitous in the Soviet Union that resulted in uh, untoward violence and death, where you've sort of uh, pointed out that there are echoes of all of that here today and how media operates.
1: What do we do with that? Always remind corporate journalists and social media that you have no understanding of how much hatred and contempt the average person has toward you. Uh, remind them that the battle is won when the average American regards a corporate journalist exactly as they regard a tobacco executive. And keep in mind that these people do not merely have a bias, which we all do, we all have a perspective that we add to how we sift information, but an agenda. That they are starting with the story, and then find evidence to reach the conclusion which they have preconceived. So when you make, this is one of the greatest things about Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Now the journalists are no longer a protected class and they're taking L after L after L on social media and they're crying about it and it's just glorious to see for once in American history.
0: Why isn't uh, the Twitter file thing, I guess it's because corporate media can't d- admit their role in all this, But but you would still think that Somebody, I, I, just the fact, look, just yesterday, day before yesterday, New York Times published an opinion piece about the masks not working. I couldn't believe it. I thought just New York Times, everybody, opinion piece showing them that, that it's done. The mask did not work and we have learned nothing. Th- that seemed like a great leap forward for me. Why can't we have somebody write a little something about maybe these Twitter files do,
1: uh, do tell us something. But, but they, they wrote that because it's that perpetual present. They will never force their readers to be like, masks don't work, we were wrong. They will, they will put the information once it no longer matters. And another big example is we don't know who went to Epstein Island. or, or, or the, uh, they were all, John Dingell, who was a congressman, there were all these sealed uh, um, cases where various members of Congress settled in terms of depositions for sexual harassment. Those cases have been sealed for a long time. There's no hunger in the media, either on the right or the left to get those cases unsealed and get those names. I think that's very, very curious.
0: It is very curious. It's curious to me that we don't know why Damar Hamlin fell fell dead in the field. Uh, That's, it, it just seems like the most obvious thing in terms of going after a story, that seems like the most obvious thing in the world to understand why that's being hidden, what happened there, what needs to be learned from it, why it was obfuscated. It just seems like such a natural for, what I thought journalists did, but
1: uh, I guess this, not, this huh? This another reason why I'm so hopeful for the future of this country. These people are often very lazy. So people who are yeah, black-pilled, meaning rap, we can't win, uh, the West is lost, America is lost. When you look at, let's suppose, John Fetterman, are you really gonna say this is an unstoppable foe I can't stand up against him. And, there, and there's plenty of Republicans as well who fit that mold. When you look at them, you're like, really? This person's gonna be the thing that I can't stand up against? So that I think is an important, uh, um, Don Lemon. You can't look at Don Lemon and be like, all right, like there's no way I can stand up to this guy. And, and that's why I'm so hopeful for the future of this country, once it's okay. divided.
0: And then of course you have Margaret, Margaret Taylor Gre- Greene uh, uh, to-
1: towing it. your line. Yeah. <laughs> you <are. laughs> really? I, I no love, kidding. I think it's very useful to have crazies in political discourse, because that forces a lot of people to go to their plan B. Because plan A is to have discourse in perpetuity. And once you see, okay, there's no talking to this person, they're a loon, you have to retreat to a fallback position. And that is what I want to see more of.
0: Where, where do you want uh, people to go uh, in response to Marjorie?
1: Well, I just like that now, you know, we spent a year where everyone, including you and myself, had to grapple with the, and I say this as an anarchist, had to grapple with the idea of defunding the police. That we're going to have these neighborhoods where there's less money spent on cops, more on community workers, and yet people can't themselves to protect their homes. And we all have to talk about this with a straight face. So I'm very gladdened that now people are going to take the idea of national divorce, which I was mocked at for quite a long time, it's never gonna happen, it's impossible, this is just craziness on Twitter or on the fringes. Well, that's how ideas become mainstream. They start with someplace crazy and with crazy people, and then everyone's like, oh my God, can you believe what these crazy people say? And then some sociopath politician is like, you know what, there's a lot of these crazies, I'm gonna push forth this idea and get further in power. And and that's how how I think this national divorce thing is gonna go.
0: Explain to people your brand of uh, anarchism.
1: I don't, I'm an anarchist without adjectives. The black flag comes in many colors, so I like them all.
0: But you're, but you, you are not uh, for, you're not anti police. You're not for a dissolution of
1: government. I am very anti police. Are you, every cop is a criminal from my perspective.
0: I've not not heard you say this. Why is that?
1: Because they have no authority to do what they do. Every police officer enforces unlawful, uh, laws uh, on the citizenry that are perfectly innocent and a completely in a violation of the Constitution and basic principles. And I'll give you a, a very obvious example. How much money would Gavin Newsom have to pay you to tell a little girl she has to shut down her laminate stand? And What kind of person would do this?
0: Yeah, I know. I know. I know it's terrible. I, they, listen, they, they, that kind of stuff was going on all the time. People's livelihood, their family businesses were destroyed. And, and they weren't just asked to do it. They're they were, you know, they put, uh, you know, steel doors and soldered things shut if, if anybody tried to uh, dared to, uh, and it really wasn't the police. The police were apologetic, and much like the lifeguards that had to tell people to get off the beach. I mean, there were, you know, 22-year-old kids telling people to get off the beach, apologizing, but they were told they had to do it. It was, you know, look, I you wonder how police, uh, well, this is a different conversation, but how the average person is uh Persuaded to do things that are not good. Um, you know, we saw a there lot is of that. no
1: law so obscene that the police would refuse to enforce it up to and including the mass execution of innocent children. And this has been demonstrated in every country throughout history, time and time again. And every letter, every law that is passed by the governors that you hate and the presidents you hate would be letters to Santa without men and women in badges willing to impose them on the citizenry.
0: And so how should this, what would the solution be to uh, criminal behavior?
1: There's so no reason why security is a, a service different from any other. Uh, if when you have a government so monopoly a on a service. product or service, right, when, when you have a government monopoly on any uh, service, not only does it become scarce and unmanageable, it also becomes politicized. We don't talk about. Uh, the Republican approach to dresses or the democratic approach to pasta. Those things don't make sense because the government is not involved in the production to, in the sense that I mean of food or clothing, but because you have politics involved in security, all of a sudden it becomes a problem for li- literally everybody.
0: Wouldn't uh, private for-profit police services necessarily discriminate against people who couldn't afford it?
1: No, because when you go into, when you, have you ever been to a hotel?
0: I've been to a hotel.
1: There's security there. You're not paying for the security. When you go to a bar, which is full of young men, full of testosterone and alcohol, there's security there. It is only the places that are under government protection, meaning the subways, the streets, the parks, where crime is the biggest issue and nothing is being done, even libraries, nothing is being done to, about it. When areas are under private purview, you, your first approach, even a mall, is to make sure that that area is secure for anyone who's who's welcome to come in.
0: I worry about the what they call the tragedy of the commons, something like that occurring from if if you had a collective force like that. But you know, has any society that's the ever done
1: that? Oh, that's the status quo, is what you're talking about, the tragedy of the commons. Police are are, are a relatively historically recent uh, phenomenon. Uh, we used to have private mm. police services before, and then it became kind of these standardized gangs that work through the state. But again, I don't, uh, you know, I don't think that's a very good pro-anarchy argument because that is uh, uh, not historically recent. And you
0: also have an interesting way of looking at taxes.
1: Well, I don't think they're that interesting. What do you, what do you mean? How is that interesting? Taxes well, are legitimate. Just, I think,
0: and, and you call them uh, robbery, essentially.
1: Well, uh, don't you think that, I mean, what's the difference between the mafia and and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi? In the views of anarchists, they are literal gangsters. And, you know, people think a gangster, they think of whatever, ta- face tattoos, maybe holding the gun like this. No, it's men and women in suits, often with big rings, and you have to sit down and kiss the ring.
0: And, and then they steal your money.
1: Yeah. Well, no, they, you don't, no, 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 no. They take their money before you even see it. There's withholding. They, they get it before you right. get it. They make sure they get right. it before you get it. Right.
0: And, but you, you I think you, I, I'm trying to get you to say what I've heard you say before, which is that was that's essentially robbery. They rob you of their money.
1: Sure, I'll say that. Yes, they rob you of your money.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's
1: what it was. OK, well,
0: this is always interesting to walk down these paths with you. Uh, and yet you remain extremely positive and optimistic. What does it look like? What, what is our world give me? Can you predict five years down the road or even three years down the road? Are you optimistic in the intermediate and near term, or is it only long term that you're optimistic?
1: I am very optimistic in the near term because I think there is an increasing normalization of the idea of uh, um, cold warfare between states and the federal government. There is an enormous incentive for President Biden to try to bring Governor Abbott of Texas and Governor DeSantis of Florida under his thumb from his tribe. Uh, Abbott, who I don't think is particularly principled at all, but sees a big incentive in playing to his base and standing up to Washington, DeSantis does that to a whole other level. So the more you have this pressure on this system, which I regard as outdated, if it ever made sense to begin with, the healthier it's going to be for everyone else. Because when politicians work together, it's always to the detriment of the citizenry.
0: And again, so in like, do you, are you predicting something? Are you imagining or anticipating something
1: in the next three to five years? I'm imagining uh, um, President Harris, and it will be absolutely hilarious to watch that uh, cackling buffoon in front of the podium try to bring America together. It's going to be absolutely terrific. Absolutely and, terrific. And that, that, makes you, <laughs> terrific. that makes
0: you optimistic. I, I, mean, I mean, I try to see the world through your eyes, as we were discussing earlier, and I, I don't see how that's optimistic. That's, that's the hard part for me that's one easy way that's optimistic
1: scary when when you have a president who is regarded with derision by the populace as trump was with large sections of the populace it is almost impossible for such a person to bring us into an unnecessary war because if i'm sending my son or daughter overseas for war Mm -hmm. it has to be someone who i respect and trust like fdr someone who's got gravitas if you have her being like we're sending troops to ukraine the number of Americans who will be like over my dead body would be astronomical and it would be dead on arrival.
0: And, and so you'd like to see us pull out of those sorts of uh, operations.
1: I think the American empire is a very bad idea. And I want, if you support the troops, a great way to do that is to get them out of harm's way.
0: I had dinner with uh, Tulsi Gabbard a couple nights ago, and I don't want to oh. speak for her, but, but she was lovely. I mean, she's as lovely as she seems in her public presentation, yeah. and she has repeatedly expressed her concern about our sort of fantasy and myth about uh, our military and and uh, and violent conflict that that we still live in this sort of time. I, words I used, I said like we imagine everything's Omaha Beach and we're going to win, uh, and even that was much more ho- horrible than we imagine it to have been. And, and we do, I think, we live in this weird everywhere. fantasy
1: as a traitor to America, even though she served in, in the military for many years, continues, that you America, you're a traitor apologist. It just, it's just, it's just it, there's no shame in, in the war machine. It's very weird, I, but uh, here we Can are. Can I say one more thing? And so that, uh, yes, of course. We killed several kids in Afghanistan mm. and no one even had to apologize for it, let alone get fired or go to jail. Like that, I think mm. speaks to the level of depravity of what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. That to me is completely unconscionable.
0: And so in three years we have uh, President Harris, how about eight years? Then do we just have state leaderships? Yeah.
1: No, we're gonna have the Republic of Texas. Um, You're welcome to come visit from your, uh, if they allow you to leave your home in California. Uh, Susan, (laughs) you're welcome to come as well. Uh, I've got a nice guest room upstairs that I don't use. Um, and I think, uh, the blue states are going to get much, much worse because there's all the pressure is all on the accelerator. If I'm using that correctly, I don't know how to drive a car and there's no mechanism to turn that boat around.
0: God, that is so true. Adam and I always talk about how they just keep rolling, they just keep going. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't pull back, it doesn't decelerate. It just keeps going. Susan, you want to go to Austin, stay with Mike.
2: I make a mean goose dumplings and sauerkraut. (laughs) All
1: right, you're in. Liberty cabbage, Liberty cabbage. In Texas, we call it Liberty cabbage.
0: We're in Austin all the time. We got to have dinner with you for sure. Freedom fries, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> freedom Fries, the Freedom Fries. All right, uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always a, a, a romp and a privilege to talk to you. And I, the White Pill is the book, the Anarchist Handbook, the, uh, what was the one on King Jong-il? The, uh, Dear, I forget Dear that Reader. name of that. Dear Reader. I mean, the, these are all worth your time, but uh, the White Pill particularly, it's, it's it, you know, if you don't have familiarity with this history, you, you should. And this is a great way to gain some familiarity with it. My, Michael is very clear headed he comes from that part of the world. Yes, he has opinions, but he's just reporting what what the f- facts of the matter really were. Susan, anything from your standpoint, before we're wrapped up? Um, oh, your mic's done.
2: You know, I was thinking about that, you guys were talking about why the Jews were mm. not respected or whatever. Targeted. Um, the one thing about nationalism and and language is you know the jews always have their own language in wherever yep. they go mm-hmm. so i think that was also yep. an issue because um it separates
0: well they had a secret club right i always think that's a bad idea yep. what, but they, what, they
2: would speak in their own language and they would the see
0: get special handshakes special greetings special language special everything and, um, that the Armenians had that too. And they were the subject of uh, a genocide, oh, yeah. maybe for the same kind of, you know, you're, but the point you're making Susan, maybe these, these cultural things that we aren't necessarily consciously aware of, have, have great, uh, play in these sorts of extreme situations.
2: Cause I always wondered too, you know, why they were such an outcast.
0: Mm. All right. Uh, but I'm also
2: not... we, we have a benefit coming up on oh, Saturday yeah. and, I just put the link to where you can bid on Dr. Drew. Uh, you get a meet and greet, virtual meet and greet. Uh, get over there. We added three more um, meet and greets because we sold the first one out immediately, and oh. we're raising money for foster kids in LA. And it's a really good group. Where it's the money goes Wonderful. to the right place. It really helps all the underprivileged. And yeah, in, I, in I, Michael, wow. become
0: more like Voltaire when, when I, uh, you know, think about all these grand uh, sweep sweeps of history, these grand narratives. I just think uh, the end of Candide. Il faut cultiver nos jardins. Just you must cultivate your own. <laughs> you must cultivate your own gardens.
1: Yeah, I, focus I, on I, your I'm...
0: home, your family.
1: Albert Camus had the introductory quote to the white pill, and he very much spoke about the, need for every person to have their own conscience and do what they can to make the world a better place. And if you create, you know, Rand had this quote, as the man who fights for the future lives in it today. And I I think that's a very, very Jewish idea that if you save one life, you save the world and it's incumbent upon all of us to leave the world a better place than we found it. And I could not agree more.
0: Are you an Ayn Rand fan too?
1: Oh yeah, I own her copy of The Fountainhead.
0: Uh, Her copy. Yeah, she's on the cover of the book. That too. is crazy. All right. Well, that's why I'm coming to your house to visit. Them. <laughs> We're going to be in
2: Austin in a yeah, month.
0: I would love that. Text
1: me.
0: All right, my friend, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, I will text you. We'll see you in a month or so. Michael Malice, everybody get the white pill. Uh we have uh head on
2: over to hillsides.org. There's a lot of other things on the auction block. You can Mm -hmm. you can if you don't want to spend a lot of money and just contribute, they have a lot of cool stuff on there. We have
0: uh on Monday, uh we have a congresswoman coming in here. Yes, I do. Uh, Lauren Brobert agreed to spend a little time with me. Uh, she's another really interesting uh voice in the Congress. And I I I I don't know if I'm gonna say this to her, but I always thought, what is this, what's she doing? She always sort of seemed I just I could not understand what she was all about. Uh, and she seemed funny to me. And then I heard her speak and she spoke to me and I thought oh shit this woman has got some stuff going on. I would love to talk to her some more. Brian O'Shea, uh, private investigator, March 2nd, March 8th, uh, Dr. Merrill Nass coming on in here. And we, as we said, February 27th, uh, Lauren Brobert coming in here. And uh, Dr. Kelly Victory is working on a lot of other guests on the vaccine and COVID front. So don't worry, we still have plenty to, plenty to tell you there. Anything, anybody in, uh, off the top of your head, Susan, that's coming? I know we don't have them officially on the schedule yet. Susan?
2: We have a long list of people, but yeah. I, I can't think Viva of them. Viva Fry is
0: getting about. coming in there. There's a bunch of people that have ideas. And I was asking also that we bring back around people like Edward Ed Dowd. And, we will. And Reesh and people that we need to talk to again and see how things are changing. So keep an eye on us. Again, we're generally here at 3 o'clock. Tuesday, Wednesday, I want to get Tulsi Pacific. back on here too. Tulsi Gabbard in here. Absolutely. Uh, we actually did... Yeah, next week we'll be here on Monday at 1 o'clock Pacific. Is that correct? I don't know. That's what it looks is like it? to me. That's what's on the schedule. Is oh, right? for Brobert. Yeah, yeah, because
2: she only had a certain oh, right. window of time. So we, we Brobert, so how do you say there's Brobert. Brobert.
0: Uh,
1: there, there's only one fry R at, at the like on end on her name. <laughs> we'll get that Bro- right Bro- before you know, she gets Brobert. here. <laughs> and, and,
0: and it looks like we have a fry on Tuesday. And mm-hmm. then I think the rest of the week we have yet to see. Well, as we said, we have... Uh, I'm not sure on the first. Did you put that up there already, Caleb? On the first, what we have there—he's got
2: the uh, whole list.
1: No,
0: we have the second. If which some of them haven't been fully confirmed,
1: so I didn't put it on the schedule yet. Okay, got it. We'll
0: got know it, soon. Got it. March 8th is Meryl Moss. We'll check it out. We'll get something interesting for you. We'll see you then. Gotcha. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me. Call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.